Hello, and welcome to 15-Minute History. Over the course of more than 20 years, James D. Richardson and his wife, Lori, retraced the steps of his ancestor, George Richardson, 1824 to 1911, across nine states, uncovering letters, diaries, and more memoirs hidden away. Their journey brought them to the brink of the racial divide in America, revealing how his great-great-grandfather Richardson played a role in the Underground Railroad, served as a chaplain to a black Union regiment in the Civil War, and founded a college in Texas for the formerly enslaved. James D. Richardson is a former senior writer with the Sacramento Bee and a retired Episcopal priest. He is the author of Willie Brown, a biography. His articles on state politics have appeared in numerous publications, including the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, and the San Francisco Chronicle. He lives in Sacramento, California, with his wife, Lori. We are very excited to have James D. Richardson, an author, with us today here on 15-Minute History. He is the author of a new book called The Abolitionist Journal, Memories of an American Anti-Slavery Family. So thank you very much, James, for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. I much appreciate it. Yeah, this is this is going to be a good conversation. I really enjoyed your book, the way that you were able to bring your ancestor, George Richardson's life to life, really, on the page was was excellent. I'd like to start, if we could, with a bit of your background and kind of how you approached his life and his diaries. You were a journalist before being ordained as a pastor. How did that that training in two very different fields prepare you to write this biography? And how did your discovery of so many similarities between your life and his kind of shape or change the book? Well, to me, both vocations are quite related. And this the topic of the book is quite related to my shift in vocations. When I was growing up, this big black notebook was on my father's bookshelf, and I always knew it was there. I knew it had it was written by an ancestor. I didn't really know a whole lot about it. I didn't even know the name of our ancestor. I'd never read it. But I was a, a journalist for more than 20 years. I covered politics and I was my my last uh, stint was with the Sacramento Bee for ten years, and one thing led to another, and uh, I had this midlife crisis, and instead of buying a red Corvette, I went off to seminary. Um, <laughs> wow! So, uh, so I quit my job at the Sacramento Bee, and I gave myself a month uh, between leaving work and going to school. And in that month was probably a little too long. I started having a lot of second and third thoughts. And I was starting to think about, well, okay, how do I beg for my job back? This is crazy what I'm about to do. (laughs) Completely nuts. And it was at that moment, my father, who I think knew me better than I knew myself, handed me that big black old notebook and said, you know, before you do anything, just read this. You you need to know about our ancestor. You know, this is the time for you to know. So I spent a weekend reading it, and uh, I was just really completely blown away by what I read. And and we'll, we'll talk about that. But it also gave me the sense that I was entering the family cause and that my life was related to him and the things I'd done were mm. somehow intermixed with this. So 
I also resolved back then to go to the places that he lived and wrote about and understand this better and eventually tell the story. And that's what I tried to do with this book. And it's taken a long time to pull it all together, but mm-hmm. that's its origin. The diary that you that you have, is there a chance that that itself will someday be published? Have you thought about doing that? Well, at some point, first, we've coll- I've collected an enormous amount of material in mm-hmm. this time. You know, the, the journal of George Richardson, which the book is primarily based on, but we also discovered by accident his wife's diary. Uh, yep. We found oh, wow. letters that he mm. wrote in the Civil War, uh, all kinds of things. Anyway, at some point in the not too distant future, we'll donate all of this to an archive. I think it belongs uh, in the public domain at some point. Trying to trying to figure out where where is the best place to go is uh, we'll get there. But mm-hmm. it'll it'll all be available at some point. Okay. Okay. That's, yeah, that's quite a treasure trove. I, I would love to mm-hmm. to peruse a lot of that stuff. That's, sure. that's, that's great. Yeah. And now it's kind of setting the historical context. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you can tell us kind of how the American churches and the church leaders address the issue of slavery specifically before the civil war. And I'm thinking specifically in the North, because I would imagine right. the vast majority of Southerners, they defended slavery on religious lines. I've read pastoral statements and sermons, you know, saying mm-hmm. that God ordained this and things like that. But how mm-hmm. did Northern churches approach the issue of slavery? Well, the context of this is the Second Great Awakening, mm-hmm. which was primarily in the Northeast. And, and the locus of it was in that upstate uh, New York and Western New York which got the reputation as the the burned over district because of the hellfire and brimstone preaching. You know, there was this fervent Protestant revival that was underway in the 1840s and 50s. And part of its flavor was it was fervently anti-slavery. And for my ancestors, their first motivation in being against slavery is religious. And that religious objection to slavery came out of the idea that people have the free will to choose salvation, but by definition, those who are enslaved have no free will. So it starts with that that foundational religious idea. All of the great orators around uh, anti-slavery were all coming out of the Great Awakening. Frederick Douglass, uh, all of them uh, were using that uh, religious argument to underscore where they were going. And yes, indeed, they were having a huge argument with Southern slave owners over this. So, you know, I think it's in our own day hard to get our arms around how much religion flavored everything, although mm-hmm. we certainly see that today. You know, religion flavors. A lot, and uh, the the liberal side was as uh, religiously fervent as the other side, and that's that that's the context of this. Okay, did George have any interactions with some of the great figures of the Second Great Awakening, like Charles Grandison Finney or anyone like that? No, not not in the slightest. Okay, and, and that and that actually to me is important. Uh, these are ordinary people doing extraordinary things. Yeah. And, I, and I think what's the real message I'm also trying to get across here is there were people you've never heard of 
thousands and thousands of them doing these things. They, their names are never written down. They have no real contact with the great names of the 19th century, but they're doing this. Mm-hmm. And, and it's really them, you know, the ordinary anti-slavery folks, the, these circuit-riding preachers out on the frontier that is, is really the, the engine that drove abolitionism. Yeah, that's such an important point. It's not just the ones who who we record and remember in the history mm-hmm. books. It's everyday people. Exactly. The idea of people who are considered ordinary doing these mm-hmm. things, the basis of the conviction is just, it's just so awesome to mm-hmm. read through and un- understand that. So based on his writings in the journal, what were some of George's specific convictions that compelled him to do what he did? And how did those convictions evolve over time? Well, he grew up in the Free Will Baptist Church, which was anti-slavery for the because of free will, uh, as I was explaining. But he migrated to the Midwest primarily to follow his childhood sweetheart, Carolyn, and she was in a Methodist family. So he became a Methodist, and the Methodists of the the Upper Midwest and the Northeast were anti-slavery. They were a little less uh, hellfire and brimstone than the free will Baptists, but their motivations were still the same. Uh, Slavery was a terrible sin and needed to be uh, dismantled. His uh, mentor was a a Methodist elder by the name of Chauncey Hobart, who was very anti-slavery, would go to these national Methodist conventions or conferences, as they called them, and submit resolutions to excommunicate any Methodist who owned a slave. You know, so the church politics is entering into that as well. You know, George Richardson was, a, I think, a pretty good preacher, but, but when I read, you know, I have the outlines of his sermons, and, and he's basing his preaching on, on the Bible and, and on morality. But you know, these aren't, you know, great theologians writing learned texts. You know, this is not Karl Barth. You know, uh, these folks are calling it as they see it. And that's what we see. Yeah. And anti-slavery and abolitionism is rooted in the Methodist church, correct? I believe oh, yeah. my, my religious history is is decent. John Wesley, the founder yes. of the Methodist church, yes, was a passionate anti-slavery activist yes. in the UK. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the, the, the Wesley brothers were anti-slavery, you know, when Methodists came to America and the Wesleys brought this here, they were not welcome in the South. Mm-hmm. Um, Methodism eventually becomes a, a pretty dominant denomination in the South. But in this Great Awakening era, Methodists were often um, chased out of the South because of their, the Wesleys were so anti-slavery. Interesting. Mm. George spent his early years in Minnesota, correct? Well, his early years were in upstate New York on a farm. You know, he, he moved to Minnesota when he was about 20. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah. And upstate New York and also Minnesota, that's about as far from the South as you can get. Yeah. Can you give the audience kind of a sense of the racial environment in those kind of very remote areas from the locus of slavery down in South Carolina and and those parts of the country? Were these anti-slavery activists, did they have any experience either meeting freed slaves or meeting men who, who had never been enslaved, but who understood from a personal standpoint the racism and the bigotry that African-Americans were facing at that time? Or was it simply the religious conviction about free will? 
Well, you know, that's just a very interesting question because as near as I can tell reading these journals and diaries, this is an abstract issue. Okay. Up until a certain moment in the Civil War. But these are very white settlements. His first encounter with anyone who was non-white was really in Minnesota with some uh, indigenous people. But near as I can tell, neither he nor his wife ever encountered an actual black person until they lived in Galena, Illinois, and used their house on the Underground Railroad. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's when this switched from being abstract religious doctrine to the reality of people. And, uh, and that's just a huge transformation right there. Yeah. And they will eventually have, you know, many encounters and this, this will, um, and Carolyn, who hope we talk about sees some things that even George is, she sees things more sharply than he does in a lot yeah. of ways. But yes, until, until then, this is still very abstract and the demographics of the upper Midwest are you know, white settlers pushing out Indians. I mean, mm-hmm. That's really what's going on here. It's interesting that it would be abstract to them because I think a lot of us think back to those times and we just assume that everyone was on the front line. So everyone was completely aware of everything going on because they were uh, were alive during that time. So th- that's an interesting point that even to them who were around in that time, it was still abstract until it was encountered. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, interesting for sure. Well, you know, news did not travel like it does now. Um, you know, we're inundated with, you know, the sea of information. And, but in the 19th century, that wasn't always so. Mm. This wasn't, you know. You yeah. Might hear of things days and weeks later. I make that point to my students all mm-hmm. the time that that the, most people didn't know what was going on until, you know, somebody came in on a horse and told them mm-hmm. about it. It wasn't like today where you just see a tweet and boom, you know all the details. You mentioned that really until one moment during the war, this was very abstract for most Northerners. Mm-hmm. I assume you're talking about the creation of Black regiments. I think they were throughout the Union Army. George obviously spent a great deal of time with them and and witnessed. I don't remember if he was actually in any battles, but certainly witnessed the aftermath of a lot of the battles in the Civil War. How did, aside from making it more, making his anti-slavery more concrete, how else did his interactions with Black soldiers change or strengthen his beliefs in the justice and righteousness and the necessity of the abolitionist cause? Well, first, how he got there, I think, Mm -hmm. was important. It's also important to note that uh, as a young man, he lost his right arm in a farming accident. So when the war erupted, he felt kind of uh, unable to do anything. But he eventually, he, he, he and uh, some Methodist pastors went to Tennessee to bring uh, medical supplies to the front. And they ended up in Murfreesboro, south of Nashville. And George was completely blown away by seeing Black people who had escaped slavery coming across the lines and joining the Union Army. And mm-hmm. then by the time they got there, the big battle of Stones River was uh, had already happened, but they were still treating the, the wounded and burying bodies. But he was just completely struck by this. And so he volunteered to be the white 
chaplain to a black union regiment. And George was, had some political connections. And so he, he got in and was assigned to Fort Pickering in Memphis, which was a really, a, as Grant was moving through the South, he was leaving behind garrison troops who were black. He lived with the black soldiers from the first day. He, he noticed in the fort that the white officers lived in houses and the black soldiers lived in tents on mm-hmm. the grounds, and he resolved he was going to live in a tent with the soldiers, and, and he did throughout the war. He was quite perceptive about the racist tendencies of even the white officers towards mm-hmm. their men. It, to me, it's extraordinary how he could see through some of them, a lot of that. He did go on some raids into Mississippi, to Oxford. He wrote about camping out with the soldiers on the night before a raid and hearing them um, praying at night, you know, out loud on the night before a battle. He was in Memphis when uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest circled around and uh, nearly captured uh, Union General Washburn. And uh, although the Confederates called it the second battle of Memphis, it was really a a raid. And uh, but George was treating a lot of wounded as they were coming into the fort. So he did see he did see some battles and some bloodshed in, in the war. Hmm. And then after the war, he and some of his uh, some other white chaplains uh, went on a tour around Arkansas and Mississippi, just seeing things. And um, they nearly were ambushed, uh, but but they saw the devastation of uh, the war. But they were also became quickly aware that uh, Blacks were not being allowed to farm their own land and sharecropping was uh, setting in very quickly. Mm -hmm. Quite a lot of awareness of what was happening immediately after the war. Wow. In, In his journal, did he write about any observations the carnage that he saw uh, in the book, you you talk about the piles of bodies mm-hmm. and the, just what he saw from the, the wounded. Did, did he talk about that horror and parallel that with this is what has to happen in order to end this evil? Not really, not really in those terms. I mean, he he was quite convinced that, you know, sort of stepping back a little bit, that the end of slavery and the preservation of the union were inextricably entwined. You you couldn't Mm -hmm. have one without the other. But I don't think he would have phrased it that we have to kill a lot of people and endure a lot of bloodshed for this to end. You know, he's still a a Christian minister who is, you know, against killing. Yeah. And and but nonetheless is, you know, he is is very much in favor of the defeating the Confederate armies and ending mm-hmm. slavery and seeing that this is the only way it's going to end. Yeah, to clarify, I, I think I was just more asking about, not that he was in favor of the killing, but just that mm-hmm. this is the consequence of this sin of slavery, that, that this is one of the things that in order to uh, do, I don't know if he ever made that, that comparison. I, I don't but, think yeah. he really phrases it that way. If he did, I don't have a record of that. You know, he, he might okay. have said those things in his sermons, but all I have are outlines of that. You know, okay. And he certainly, you know, you know, Lincoln's second inaugural is the, the most eloquent statement of what you're saying. And oh, yeah. I'm not so sure my folks are certainly not as eloquent as Abraham Lincoln. So, you know, that that's idea that Lincoln presents is 
certainly undergirds people like George Richardson. So. Mm-hmm. Speaking of Lincoln, where was George when he heard about the 13th Amendment being passed? Is, is that covered in the diary and kind of what was his reaction? Well, what's I don't even know that he knows that. Okay, because I I, <laughs> yeah, I couldn't yeah, remember if it was mentioned yeah. in the book. Yeah, no, it's it's really not. And and one thing is, you know, George is not a very political person. Well, one sense he's very political. Yeah. In, in that sort of you know on the ground politics in churches and getting into regiments. But on the other hand, his awareness of national politics is not that great. He only mentions one instance of ever voting, and that was for Lincoln. But he doesn't comment on the news of the day. His wife seems more aware of it, of things like that. She has commentaries on uh, Andrew Johnson, who she calls a traitor. But, <laughs> wow. uh, but George never really mentions the 13th Amendment or any of the rest of it. And his wife. It's very clear from the reading that she had a profound influence in supporting and helping him throughout his travels and his work. Uh, Can you tell our audience a little bit about her and also more generally about the role of women in the abolitionist movement? Well, Carolyn grew up in an abolitionist family. She she writes about how hearing of the murder of, uh, I think it's Owen Lovejoy, who was an abolitionist, uh, as a child, you know, her family was full of tears. I mean, she just, you know, was steeped in this. And what I really gather is, if anything, her commitment to abolitionism is even stronger than George's. Yeah. When they had their house in Galena, they helped a uh, enslaved woman escape. And Carolyn was, had a attic room ready to hide her in when she came and dressed her as a man to get her out of town. You know, she, she was just thickly involved in this. She wrote poetry and that's, you know, the poems are kind of steeped in, in that. Also, you know, she raised five children uh, while George is off gallivanting around the countryside, uh, going off to war and going on these circuits to serve congregations. She's raising the family. Uh, so, you know, the role of women is still domestic and she's you know, very uh, committed to that. But she's very aware <laughs> of what's going on. Yeah. Um, and then, uh Going forward beyond the Civil War, uh, we haven't talked about this yet, but they founded a school in Texas for uh, the previously enslaved. And it was started in Dallas. The Klan burned it down and then they rebuilt it. And then the city of Dallas chased them out and then Mm -hmm. rebuilt in Austin. She eventually, with her youngest child, her daughter Emma, she came to Austin and ran the school. And she was quite aware and wrote this extraordinary essay in her diary, quite aware of uh, racism and how there was this systematic effort to deprive Blacks of choice farmland and keep them as sharecroppers. Mm-hmm. She saw this as an economic system, and she's moving way beyond religious motivations in her commentary. Um, th- this is more than about just racial attitudes around you know prejudice she's seeing this as a system a scheme as she calls it designed to keep the lowest class low and she sees it all uh, she's also very aware and writes about how as a 
white woman working with black people, she is um, socially ostracized by white society in, mm. in Texas. And she doesn't care. <laughs> She's just like, you know, fine, you know, I don't care, you know, um, go for it. Uh, but she's, you know, you know, more seriously, her attitude, all, you know, her observation is that this virulent racism is really degrading to everybody. It, it's making white people stupid. Right. That's you so true. Seeing the whole thing that way. And, and, and George is, um, you know, I'm certain they must, must have talked about it. So he no doubt agreed with her. But, you know, her writing is more perceptive around that than than his. He tends to write, uh, we did this, we did that, we did this. And she's, mm -hmm. she's really writing about, here's what this really means. And uh, so, you know, together we get a, a much more textured image of what's really going on. To backtrack a bit to the Texas burning, I wanted to talk through that in that specific chapter where the church and the school is burned down. One of the things that I remember reading that and thinking, George had to know that he was aware, obviously, of context of society there at the time, and that there was going to be major pushback for taking mm -hmm. that action of creating the church and then the school, but he still did it, which mm -hmm. is awesome. In knowing that it seemed like the events that followed were expected, what compelled George and Carolyn and the pastors there to continue forward? Well... George, after the Civil War, went home to Minnesota, tried to pick up the life of the roving Methodist preacher, and he got very depressed. I mean, it felt trivial at that point. And I'm sure, just reading his descriptions, he was suffering from what we would now call post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, from the war. And he, he fell into a great depression and just sort of gave up at age 46. Uh, and then his oldest son said, we're moving to Texas. Uh, so he just he and George went down to Texas. So when George got there, he was really willing to just kind of do anything and went to a uh, Methodist conference and met a whole bunch of black pastors and was quite smitten with them and talking with them. And they impressed upon him the importance of literacy uh, among the now uh, freed people. And, you know, they convinced him that he could do something. And to me, there, there's something important here, which is that these Black pastors are the real moving agents in getting this school going. And, and they're also realizing they need some white support to make it happen. And they find in George a very willing partner to do this. And he's the one, as the white guy who convinces the white Methodist bishop to support this. and. Uh, so really, together, this partnership creates this school. Uh, and there's really three Black pastors. Uh, he writes a lot about all three of them. Mm -hmm. um, we managed to find the photograph of one of them, quite by accident. <laughs> mm. But George, is, as he writes about that period of his life, he just said, I'm just, I'm just open to what the Lord wants me to do. And that's what spoke to him. Uh, they're all quite courageous, uh, certainly. and. Uh, they're not intimidated by what transpires. And, and maybe it was just he had become more hardened in the Civil War to all of this. And, you, know, you know, I think he had a little bit of a fatalist attitude. And 
given that after the war, he was really ready to die anyway. He was just so mm. depressed that wow. he's like, okay, throw it at me. You know, I'm, I'm every day now is a gift. Um, and, you know, I think that's also his attitude. So would, would you say that his time in Texas was a kind of a rebirth where he was? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. A rebirth. And, and, and he lived it's interesting. to be 87. I mean, he I lived, <laughs> when he was ready to give up, he was only halfway through his life as it turned wow. out. You know? That's crazy. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. It's interesting that you know, he was reborn into this. It seemed like the convictions that he carried to the point where he was mm-hmm. very depressed still mm-hmm. existed, but he was so mm-hmm. burned out from them. And then he found the cause again there. He found in talking to other pastors there who mm-hmm. who were Black. He learned from them and got encouragement from them to continue on in in a way that allowed him to see the cause again and realize his uh, convictions again. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and also I to see the was, outcomes and to see the outcomes. Absolutely. Yeah. Do we do we know about how many kids were educated at that school over his time there? You know, I have some numbers, but I, mm-hmm. I don't think we really have a, a total. I th- I think. A certain point they they were well over a hundred when they got into Austin, but um, yeah, you know, it started out small. What was interesting is they they called it a college, but they were doing a lot of remedial work, mm-hmm. and they started out by teaching children, but the adults would sit with their kids and and learn how to read and write too. Eventually, the college in Austin really you know became truly an adult college, but it was always in those early days doing intergenerational work. One of his motives on the, on the college front was he was quite taken by hearing Black pastors preach, but his Black partner pastors impressed upon him was that most of the Black pastors couldn't read the Bible. They only knew it from memory, from hearing it. And so he was like, what if they could really read it? You know, how more powerful could they be? You know, so so there is a great religious motivation to literacy as well. Mm -hmm. And um, his partners mostly could read, but one of them really couldn't. But, you know, he wanted them to learn how to read just for that. Uh, Carolyn, in her, her later writings, gets a little deeper about how this education is needed for black people to get better jobs. You know, she has a more economic motivation sets Mm -hmm. in with her, particularly women. If she was ever sympathetic to, you know, women's suffrage, she never mentions it, but, but she is very definitely motivated, particularly by the need to educate women and in particular black women. That's a huge motivation for her, and it, and it's a primarily an economic motivation and just a, a moral living motivation. I think it's it's fascinating just looking at the at the sheer numbers. You've got two and a half million, I think, freed slaves, and just in that one <laughs> corner of Texas, he is making such a difference in so many of those children's lives. And when you look at the numbers, it seems like, okay, well, it's just a drop in the bucket, but it just you don't have to be someone who is moving and shaping national policies or things like that. Exactly. Any one of us can make a difference just like George did in that small corner of the world. It's yeah. inspiring. It really is. Thank you. Yeah, it is. It, you know, 
and they weren't the only people doing this. Mm-hmm. You know, they were all over the South, uh, and the Methodists were doing this, the Episcopalians were doing this, the, the Baptists were doing this. I mean, they were all over the South, these kind of schools were cropping up, and many of them are still there. Some mm-hmm. of them are quite famous. At this oh, point. yeah. Uh, you know, this, is, this was a, a, a major movement, yeah. just one little isolated place. And it is interesting to look at, I did, I did a little bit of looking at a lot of those institutions from Texas all the way out to the East mm-hmm. Coast. Most of them are run by religious organizations, yes. and yet you do have some uh, that are run by the Freedmen's Bureau, especially right mm-hmm. after the war. And just the difference in the success rate, I think it speaks, not to make a political point, this is not mm-hmm. about government versus the church, but the Freedmen's Bureau is sending people down for a couple of months or maybe a year, whereas these pastors, like George and like so many others, are, are moving into this community and seeing these people every day. They're living with them. They're making long-term investments in the lives of those less fortunate. And I think that that's another lesson. It's not just the quick and easy fix. You know, mm-hmm. we're going to come and make a short contribution. You've got to be in it for the long haul if you're going to make any lasting change in any society. You know, and the Freedmen's Bureau was being actively destroyed by yes. President Johnson. And the Ron Cherno's book on Grant goes into a lot of great detail about mm-hmm. how they were being uh, sabotaged by President Andrew Johnson. So, yeah. uh, you know, and they really weren't funded well enough. But these Protestant denominations were not subject to those pressures. They mm-hmm. just went in, did it, and were in for the long haul. And uh, what was happening in Washington had minimal impact on them, but it had impact on them. And what George had to work continually at was the Northern denominations were pretty stingy with the money and Mm -hmm. spent a lot of time going North to places like Cincinnati to raise awareness and raise some money. Uh, And that was always a struggle. Eventually their school in Austin, which just struggled financially for a long time, but they eventually got a big bequest from the estate of an Iowa abolitionist. And that came through thanks to the Methodist Freedmen's Bureau uh, uh, that arranged those things. But that was hard to get. Tough work. Is the school that George founded, is that still around or has it closed or merged with any other institutions? The school in Austin is still there today. Yeah, Houston Tillotson University. Uh, the living legacy of my ancestors are the is that incredible, wonderful school, and every student who's come through there. The work of my ancestors lives on in a very living way with this great school, and yeah. uh, and the students who've come through. Some you've heard of, and some you haven't, and um, so it's still there. That's well, amazing. Hearing you talk about how the journal affected you. It seems like the story of George and, and and his his life in general and what he wrote in that journal continues to make changes. It continues to cause change in people who read it, to compel them to think uh, in a way that I, I, I would say that all of us are supposed to, how we see other human beings. It's really compelling thinking about the journal that and uh, your comments of how that uh, continues to to evoke change. Well, yes. I mean, I think you're quite perceptive on that. You know, one of the things I'm trying to get at in this book is that as a nation, we've never fully faced up 
to the legacy of slavery, to its brutality, to how it shapes us. We still carry this around with us. Uh, but the other legacy we haven't really looked at either very well are those who fought against it, who mm -hmm. refused to be, quote unquote, captives of their times. You know, they saw the evil for what it was. And that's also our legacy. And these are ordinary, regular people, not just the big names in the textbooks. Uh, but that's our legacy, too, that we're shaped also by those who yeah, absolutely. took a different path. And, and I'd like us to be aware of kind of both both ends of that. That's so true. It's it's so often it's either one or the other. And there there does have to be such a balance when you're when you're talking about big yeah. complex historical problems like mm -hmm. the legacy of slavery and racism in this country. And and it shapes all of us. And and to me, the the story of George and Carolyn Richardson are really the story of all of us. It's uh, even if our ancestors came later to America, we we still these are the stories that shape our country, our culture, um, mm -hmm. and th these are these are our stories. This is the American story. Absolutely. Hearing your comment about it's also the story of people who fought against mm -hmm. it. I think the full story are those two sides. You you see mm -hmm. the evil, then you see the people stand up and say enough. And the people who do that go through a lot and sacrifice a lot in order mm -hmm. to say that and act on that conviction. So George and his family in general encountered a lot of hardships in doing what they did and believing the things that they knew to be true. He had to know that in the moment, some of it would fail, that this is not going to always be successful. Based on his writings, was it his faith that compelled him to keep going? Was it his conviction? Was it all of those things? What in your mind, based on what you've read from this primary source, mm -hmm. uh, compelled him to never quit, to not stop, to continue to push forward, to solve and destroy this evil of slavery and how people that were being treated? Well, what's really interesting <laughs> to me, late in life, he went back to Minnesota. He hadn't lived there in many, many years. And he went back to one of his old churches and gave his last sermon and he was in his late 80s and we have the outline of that sermon and he that's the question he asks of himself and mm. he recounts in this sermon the many hardships of his life by then he had outlived carolyn uh he mentions battles uh friends killed and gone uh failures uh Many doubts along the way, uh, the loss of faith, the regaining of faith, all of it. You know, he just recounts his whole life in those very kind of terms. And mm -hmm. then he asks himself, so why did he keep going? You know, what kept him going? What, what was it? And his answer for himself, he says, quote, the almightiness in the form of love. To him, it was only. God's grace of love that kept him going. You know, it, to, to him, it was a, a power beyond himself that kept him there and kept him going. Mm. Sounds like yeah. it, it echoes St. Yeah. Paul. I have fought the good yeah. fight. I have yeah. finished the race. I've kept the faith. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. You know, so in the end, it still is coming back to this deep well of faith and uh, 
just feeling what he felt at a very young age, that God was going to sustain him somehow or another and had done so. Um, yeah. And you kind of hear in that a, a, an old man saying, yeah, I'm done. I fought the good fight and it's your turn now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So as people go out and get this book, and again, I want to mention the title, The Abolitionist Journal, Memories of an American Anti-Slavery Family. How do you hope that this book will shape your readers' approach to their own histories? What's kind of the the central message or the central takeaway of this book and how you hope it will affect the readers? Well, one, I I hope people will come away with a a more textured understanding of the past and how it shapes them now. For some, they may want to look into their own ancestors. You know, I am lucky that my ancestors wrote it all down, and I realize how incredibly rare that really is. But, you know, I wish I had known some of these things when I was younger and could have asked some questions of my parents and grandparents. So maybe people might just even do that. But I, but I, but more than just kind of doing your own personal research, really just understanding that what we're going through now in our country and in our world, this is not the first time things like this have happened. We, we've been through crises before, great political conflicts. Uh, this country has been deeply divided and violently divided before, um, and we've come through that with the courage of ordinary people. And maybe those ordinary people are us too. And maybe we, maybe people might get that out of it as well. Hear, hear. Very wise. Yep. And amen. This has been great. I enjoy every time we do one of these interviews, I learn so much. And I, I really here. appreciate you taking the time to, uh, to be with us this morning. And we really appreciate it. Well, absolutely. <laughs> The book for our audience is The Abolitionist Journal, Memories of an American Anti-Slavery Family. The author is James D. Richardson. It is an excellent, excellent book. Well-written, very, it makes the people come alive right off the page, and it is well worth uh, all of you picking up a copy. Is it available as an ebook or on Audible or anything like that? Yeah, I, I believe it's on Kindle, and you can get it in all the online bookstores and also from the publishers. Okay. And are you working on a, a new book or anything like that? Oh, my wife would. <laughs> I have a few ideas, but I, I think we need to get through this one for real. And sure. We'll see. I, I'm still toying with a few ideas. We'll see what happens next. Okay. And if people want to see any of your other work or to follow you on any social channels, are you on Twitter, Facebook, anything like that? Your uh, I'm website? On, I'm on Facebook and my uh, Twitter handle is uh, SackWriter. Okay. Yeah. And um, yeah. And I my uh, previous book uh, is Willie Brown, a biography. I wrote a book about the former California Assembly Speaker and San Francisco Mayor Willie Brown. And okay. That one was a much bigger book. Oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, audience members should uh, should yeah. definitely look into that one yeah. as well. Yeah. Thank you. All right, thank you again. We really appreciate you uh taking the time to join us. Thank you. Well, you guys take care. Thank you for joining us on 15 Minute History. Please take a moment and leave us a review wherever you listen to this podcast. It really does help. 
And if you would like to help us improve this podcast even more, you can visit our website, onefiveminutehistorypodcast.org, and click the support and donate button. Thanks, and we will see you next week.